Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. notes, I get you to pull those out and you can track with the message this morning. Uh, for those of you just joining us, we've been uh, running through a long teaching series called The King's Tale, and we've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke, uh, one section at a time, uh, and today we found our way all, way all the way up to Luke chapter 8, starting at verse uh, 26. Um, at this point in the story, I want to give you a little bit of background before we jump into today's story. But uh, Jesus uh, has been in the early part of his ministry, and he's been working in a region called Galilee. And as he's been going through Galilee, he's going from town to town, village to village, teaching about the kingdom, inviting people into the kingdom to come and be his disciples. Uh, but he's also been performing miracles. He's been healing people. Uh, he's been raising the dead. He's been doing all sorts of things that are giving evidence of who he actually is. And slowly but surely along the way, the disciples are beginning to discover more and more about Jesus uh, in, in the story. And uh, today, uh, the topic of today's message is called Demonic Pigs. Full stop. Happy Thanksgiving. Um, and I say that at the outset because uh, it, it really doesn't match up with Thanksgiving, okay? Uh, I understand that. But it's the next story in the Gospel of Luke, and it happened to land on Thanksgiving, okay? And we're just going to keep going. Uh, turkey, yes. Happy Thanksgiving, turkey, yes. Uh, as it turns out, um, I, I need to give you a little bit of immediate background just so you know what happens in this story because what happens in the story before it is important if you're going to understand what happened in this story. If you hear last week, we talked about uh, the story of Jesus and he was in a boat, he was sleeping. He told his disciples, I want you to go across the Sea of Galilee. I've got somewhere to go. They all got in the boat. Jesus went to sleep. Big storm, wind and waves. Jesus wakes up. He calms the storm. He calms the waves. Uh, the disciples are afraid. And then they land on the shore on the other side of the lake. This is where we pick up the story today. So let's walk through the story. Luke chapter 8, starting at verse 26. Here we go. They, meaning the disciples and Jesus, sailed to the region of Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. And when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. Now for a time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out, and he fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. And many times it had seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. All right, this is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray uh, now that you're... Um, your Holy Spirit would take your word, which is alive and which is active, and would instruct us and would teach us, would grow us, would stretch us, and would challenge us. And so, God, we pray that our hearts would be good soil, where your word could land and a harvest could grow up and could uh, feed many. So we entrust the word to you now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
All right, so now, right off the top, let me say that, that I know that when we start talking about demon possession, okay, and we start talking about demons in the story of Jesus, uh, right away, immediately, there might be a little bit of skepticism that rises to the surface in our hearts, right, when you start talking about this. But let me just start simply this morning by just saying this. I feel you. I feel the tension around this topic, okay? And I get why we might be skeptical about it. And I am going to address this in a few minutes. As a matter of fact, for the last couple of weeks, I said I'm going to be addressing this topic. This is the Sunday we're going to talk about it just a little bit. Okay, so trust me, though. I mean, we just read the first part of the story. The story gets even more messed up when we keep reading, okay? But let me say this. Okay, there, um, to get a more nuanced understanding of this story, I need to do a little bit of teaching here this morning, okay, before we dive further into the story. Uh, so I want to take a few minutes and talk about what the Bible actually teaches about devils and the devil and demons. Because here's the thing. There are uh, actually a lot of misconceptions out there about this topic, both within the church and within the culture in which we live. Um, one of the reasons is maybe we spent too much time watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Fringe or Supernatural or choose your favorite horror movie, okay? Um, the other reason is because churches nowadays actually tend to shy away from this topic. And part of the reason why we shy away from this topic is if you grew up in the 80s and in the 90s in church, it might have felt like this is all they talked about, okay? Like the devil is going to get you and he's just hide behind every stone. He's going to jump out, ah, okay, and he's going to wreck your life, okay? And so because of that, churches have kind of reacted to that and now we don't talk about it at all, which is equally dangerous to talk about it all the time. So, uh, I want to I talk about it this morning, um, partly because of the abuses of the past, partly because it's going to make sense of the story. Uh, I think the sad result is a lot of Christians have a, uh, a more accurate knowledge of the Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, than they do uh, of what the Bible says about our own cosmos. It's interesting. Okay, so here's the misconceptions. Uh, misconception number one. Jose, you can't speak out like that, okay? Love you, man, but you, you're interrupting for everybody, Okay. And I'm sure your, your, your helper will be able to help you with that, okay? Awesome. Everyone, give a hand for Jose. Love the guy. All right. Okay. So, misconception. Misconception number one. Here it is. Uh, the devil is just a symbol. The devil is just a symbol. Uh, there are some that would say, okay, well, the devil in the scripture is not really a real person. It's just a symbol. It's just a metaphor for evil in the world. But what's interesting is the Bible actually doesn't portray the devil this way. In fact, uh, Jesus doesn't portray the devil in this way. Uh, as you read through scripture, we discover he's an intelligent, real, personal being. Uh, he's not just a power. He, he's not just a force. Uh, he has many different names. Satan, uh, Lucifer, Beelzebub, the devil, the tempter, the evil one, the deceiver. Okay? So in scripture, as you read through it, you discover that Satan is actually an enemy of God uh, and Jesus and his kingdom. He's plotting, he's working to keep our world uh, in rebellion against God. And this includes his desire to seek out and to sideline and wreck believers in Christ. Uh, scripture describes Satan as a roar, he goes about like a roaring lion seeking who he might devour. And so like most predators, he's often looking for the sickly. He's often looking for the isolated to try and bring them down and to tear them down. So the devil is, is very real. Here's a second misconception. Is the devil works alone. The devil works alone. And that's not true as well. There is one devil... But as scripture says, there are many demons. Uh, in the story uh, of, uh, of creation and whatnot and, and of the cosmos, the, dev the devil is actually a fallen angel who led a rebellion 
against God. So he had his own group of angels, and he tried to seek out a rebellion against God, and it took place in heaven. This big war broke out. Uh, Satan, it says, had about one-third of the angels on his side, and he went up against the forces of heaven. Archangel Michael had about two-thirds of them, and they, they won. They won the battle, and as a result, Satan and his angels were thrown down to the earth. They were cast down to the earth. And so these fallen angels now reside in the earth today, is what Scripture teaches. And they are called demons. Uh, the Bible also calls them unclean spirits. The Bible also calls them evil spirits. So what this basically means is the Satan has an entire posse of thugs who work alongside of him. Now, here's the third misconception. This one is really important. And this is probably one of the biggest misconceptions that we have about the devil and about demons, is that the devil is in hell. Um, and a lot of movies, especially that we might watch, would portray him as being in hell. He is not in hell. Satan does not live in hell. The reality is that, that he actually resides here on earth, he and his member. They were thrown down to the earth. So, um, the one thing that we learn and we discover in scripture, and what we're going to discover in the passage today, is he doesn't want to go to hell. Because hell is actually the place of punishment for fallen angels. Uh, when you read through scripture, it says that when they go there, they're chained in darkness and fire until the end of times. And then at the end of all times, what will happen is the, the gates of hell will be opened up and they will be cast into the burning lake of sulfur, okay? So for them, the devils don't own condos in hell, okay? Uh, th they're not going to go there and party like it's Cancun. That's not the place where they want to go. At the end of the day, if they go there, they're actually chained up. Another word the Bible uses for hell is the word the abyss. And the word abyss essentially technically means the bottomless pit, okay? And so this is important to remember because it's going to come up in the story today, the abyss. Now, when the devil and the demons were cast down to earth, this earth that we live on today became their domain. And that's why Satan is described in scripture as the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He is called by Paul the god of this age, okay? The Bible says that actually the whole world is under his control. And that's really interesting when you think about that. See, here's the thing. Is when, when God created the, the whole world, he placed it under the dominion of Adam and Eve. So as humans, human beings, we were its leaders. We were its stewards. He said, rule the earth, fill the earth, right? Uh, take care of the earth was really our responsibility. But in the story of Genesis, who was the one that tempted them? Satan was the one that tempted them, right? And when they gave into the temptation, when they believed it, they rebelled against God. And when they rebelled against God, something very significant happened. When they rebelled against God, they essentially gave up their dominion. They gave up their rulership, their control. So that, ultimately, the rulership was transferred over to the God of this age, the enemy, right? And that the, old, the whole world, the entire world, Scripture says, is essentially playing for his king. Now, it's not overt, right? Listen, I haven't been a Christian my whole life, right? When I wasn't a Christian, I wasn't thinking to myself, yeah, I'm playing for Team Satan. Okay, that's not what it's about. That's not what it means. It just means by, by living in this world, by obeying its rules, by being part of this world system that is antithetical to God, essentially, you're playing for the other team. So there's no, there's no neutral ground. There's no Switzerland here. Scripture would say there's one team or there's the other team. And it says because of Satan's rulership, the entire world is held captive to sin and to death 
which are just the natural consequences of rebellion towards God. So, that's the third, third misconception. Here's the fourth misconception, is that the devil is all-powerful. The devil is all-powerful. Uh, as, as we see in Scripture, is the devil is limited. He's not all-powerful. He's not all-knowing. Now, he's smart, and he does have power, but he doesn't even come close to God. And as it turns out, as Satan functions here on earth, he's still functioning under the authority, the ultimate authority of God himself, okay? Um, and at the end of the day, God will ultimately decide when it's Satan's time to end it all, okay? Now, the demonic force's primary tool in this world, though, their powerful tool, is primarily two things. It's temptation and it's deception, the, the devil is called the father of all lies. It says he blinds the minds of unbelievers so they can't understand the gospel. It says he masquerades as an angel of light. In other words, he makes what's right seem what's wrong, what's wrong seem what's right. This is his way, right? Uh, the Bible also says that the devil uses temptation, which is a form of deception, really, at the end of the day. Uh, we read a number of stories like that. The devil successfully tempted Adam and Eve, um, Ananias and Sapphira, Judas, right? He tried tempting Jesus, but he was unsuccessful. But this is one of his methodologies, one of his powers. Now, um, the goal of temptation, ultimately, at the end of the day, is to get us to turn away from God. It's to get us caught up so that we essentially start playing for the other team, whether in small ways in our own lives or in big ways where we just kind of abandon the one team and go to the other. Now, the power of demonic forces, was what we discover in Scripture, though, is not limited to deception. There are other forces. Uh, uh, there are rare instances, and I will uh, emphasize the word rare. There are rare instances in Scripture where demonic power is associated with sickness. Okay, That's not always the case, but there are rare instances. And of course, there are very rare instances in Scripture where demon possession happens. Or some would say demon oppression, or some would say demonization. Okay, These are categories we use to try and explain it, but at the end of the day, there are stories where some people ultimately come under the influence of a demonic power and are controlled by it. And this is what we find ourselves in the story today. Okay, that's a lot of content. Let me tell you, it took 20 hours to take all of that and condense it down into four thoughts, okay? Because there are hundreds of scriptures all over the map that get us to those four points, okay? So all of that is important as we get into the next part of the story. Let's get into it. Starting in verse 36. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into them. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And the demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs. And he gave them permission. And when the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Okay. If your favorite movie today is Charlotte's Web or Babe, Pig in the City, we send you our condolences. Um, and this is the time where I ask the question, how many of you this weekend chose to eat ham instead of turkey? Okay, how many of you thinking of changing your minds this weekend? Okay. But don't cast aside your bacon. Let me give you some background information to help you look with this story. First of all, one thing you need to know is a legion was a, a term used by the Roman army, and it essentially described about 6,000 soldiers. 
So that gives you a little bit of perspective here. Uh, Jesus was going toe-to-toe with a large force here. Uh, But even though he was outnumbered, they feared him. He didn't fear them because they knew who he was. Remember earlier in the story, what did they call Jesus? They called Jesus the son of the most high God. They knew who he was. It was no, no mystery to them. Because remember, they had spent time in heaven. They knew who the son of God was, right? They knew what power he had. They knew what authority he had. And they knew they couldn't touch him. And this is why they begged Jesus not to torture them and not to send them where? Did you notice where? To the abyss. Remember, the abyss, hell, is the place where they would go and they would be chained up until the end when they would ultimately be pulled out and cast into the lake of burning sulfur. They did not want to go there. It was the last place they wanted to go. Like you wanting to go to Denny's for your anniversary dinner date, you don't want to go there, right? Or the West Edmonton Mall the day before Christmas, it is the last place you want to go. In the same way, the abyss was the last place that they wanted to go. Now, one part of the story is we have no idea why the demons chose to go into the pigs. We have no idea why they ran down the bank into the waters. I mean, there's a lot of speculation about this. Commentators have a lot of questions about why that, why did that happen, okay? I mean, did the pigs just react this way because, you know, they like being alone with their own thoughts and suddenly got a little frustrated or, I don't know, maybe, maybe this was the first time that the demons drove pig, right? They just had their learner's license. They lost control, went into the water. We don't know. We will never know. And this is one of those questions maybe when we see Jesus face to face, we say, why pigs? Why pigs, Lord? But can we agree together this morning? This is a really strange story. And some of us this morning might be thinking, demons and pigs? I mean, that's a little far-fetched. I mean, that's, that's out there. That's like Sasquatch and fairies and, and the Eskies beating the riders. I mean... How can any reasonable person believe in this stuff? That's a really good question. Is it unreasonable? Is it unreasonable to believe in intelligent, malevolent, spiritual powers that are at work in the world today? So let let me just address this question this morning by just saying a couple of things. Here's the first thing I would like to say this morning. Not seeing something doesn't mean it's not real. So if you say that it's not real because you haven't seen it, and that's partly, you know, part of our skepticism, right? That's not conclusive proof that it doesn't exist. You have never seen Julius Caesar. You have never seen light photons. You have never seen dark matter. And yet the evidence seems to point to the reality that these things do, in fact, exist. And so just to simply brush it off because you've never seen it is essentially what logicians would call an argument from silence. You can't simply make that argument from silence. It would be unreasonable to do that. But here's the second thing I would say. Empirical evidence is not the only source of truth in our world today. Uh, one of our common arguments we would say is, well, this doesn't measure up to empirical evidence. This is not scientific. And let me say, hey, listen, I love science. I believe the Christian faith is not anti-science, nor should it ever be, okay? I think every time we have a new scientific development emerge on the scene, Christians should be the first people to say, that is awesome. God, that's how you did it, okay? So I don't think that there should be this polarization 
between scientific discovery and the Christian faith. Actually, I think they, they work very well together. The challenge is, the challenge is that our Western culture has an assumption behind something that's called the scientific method, okay? The scientific method, it basically assumes this, okay? That you can determine something is true if it's two things, if it's measurable and if it's repeatable. And the problem is, is that so many people add the word only to the equation. So they will say that something is only true if it's measurable or repeatable. Now, the problem with that statement, the problem with that statement is it actually cannot stand up to its own scrutiny. It's actually a self-defeating statement. Because think about it. The statement itself cannot be proven through the scientific method. The statement itself is not sustainable. So this version of the scientific method, okay, it's founded on an assumption. And the assumption is what we would call the naturalist worldview. Okay, the naturalist worldview assumes, it assumes that this physical world, this physical universe that we have, is the only universe that there is. And so anything outside of this sphere is automatically assumed to not be true or to not be real. So in a naturalist worldview, there's no spiritual world, there's no afterworld, there's no world beyond this world. Now the challenge with the naturalist worldview, as we've seen already, is that it's based upon an assumption. It is not a provable position even with the scientific method, the scientific method cannot even prove its own basic assumption. And as it turns out, as it turns out, there are many things we believe in that cannot be measured through the scientific method. Things like love and freedom and justice, etc. Now, this doesn't prove, and I haven't attempted to prove, but this doesn't prove that there are demonic forces at work in the world today. All I'm trying to point out is that it's not unreasonable. It is not unreasonable to believe in them. It's only unreasonable if you accept the assumption of the naturalistic worldview and of the scientific method, the only scientific method. So, I think it's important that if you hold this view, if you hold a naturalistic worldview, is that you just simply be honest with yourself and with everybody else that it is, in fact, still based upon an assumption. So the problem with assumptions, though, is that often they can, they can color your conclusions, they can dictate where the evidence ultimately leads, and so we just need to be wary of our assumptions. And I'll say to Christians, to Christians as well, who are here in the room, we also need to be honest about our own assumptions, right? If we're not honest about our assumptions, and the world is not honest about their assumptions, essentially when we get into dialogue with each other, we're talking past each other, right? Because... We're starting with different premises. So, be wary of our assumptions. Now, you might ask today, have I ever met a demonized person? My answer to the question is, yes, I think I have, on two separate occasions. It was uh, an experience that just um, left me shaken, but it was an experience that I found very difficult to just simply explain away through scientific means and explanation, okay? So perhaps because of that, I am a little bit less skeptical about this idea than the rest of us. But uh, I'm sure there are a number of people in the room today that have maybe had encounters with evil that were just so intense and real that you say that they're just pretty much undeniable. All right, let's get back to the story. All of that to get us back into the last part of the story. Here's what happened. Verse 34. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, 
they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Now those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Grassinese asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and he left. The man from whom the demons had gone out and begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and he told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him. Now, um, at the end of the day, we have to ask this question What is this story really all about? You know, why, why does Luke include this story? Why does he put it in here? What is he trying to teach us? This morning. And I think there are two truths, two powerful truths that just kind of rise up at the end of the story that I think we need to embrace. And here's what it is. Number one, this story shows us the undisputed power of Jesus over the forces of darkness. The undisputed power of Jesus over the forces of darkness. Over the past couple of months, we have been walking through Luke chapter 7 and Luke chapter 8, and we have seen Jesus time and again demonstrate his power and his authority by accomplishing the impossible simply by speaking a word. He doesn't call down another power. He doesn't pray that God would intervene and help him, okay? Jesus accomplishes all of these miraculous things simply by speaking a word from his mouth. When Jesus speaks, he's unstoppable. So let me just give you a quick recap of this, what his authority entails, okay? At his word, he demonstrated his authority over sickness when he healed the centurion's servant from miles away. At his word, he demonstrated his authority over death when he raised the widow's son back to life. At his word, he demonstrated his authority to forgive sins, right, when he forgave the woman who anointed him with oil. At his word, he demonstrated his authority over all of creation and over the chaos itself when he calmed the wind and we calmed the waves. And here, he demonstrated his authority, his ultimate authority over the forces of darkness by driving out a legion of demons. Not just one, but an entire legion of demons at his word. An entire legion of demons cowered before him, and Jesus had all power and authority over him. And what this shows us is that the kingdom of heaven, led by its king, was pushing back the darkness. But this was just the beginning in the story. Because after this, if you actually turn the page over to chapter 9, we see Jesus sending out his disciples. And what does he do? He gives them authority to go forth now and to cast out demons. So the kingdom of darkness is being pushed back. And the kingdom of heaven has come crashing into the earth, led by its king, pushing back the darkness. But this would only be, be the beginning. This would, in fact, just be the wind before the storm. This would be the prelims before the main fight card. And the main fight card would be the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me just read you a couple of verses of what the cross of Jesus Christ accomplished. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 to 15. 
Jesus, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has what? He's taken it away and he's nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus would ultimately, ultimately destroy the power and the work of Satan. He would defeat him. He would break his power. He would crush the serpent's head. He would triumph over them through the cross. So here's the thing. is No longer would humanity have to be held captive under the authority and the power of Satan because Jesus defeated sin and death. And so now people could be rescued from the enemy's camp and be brought into the kingdom of God. And so we, all the, the saints, all the followers of Jesus, we can, like the saints in uh, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11, we can say we triumph over the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. That we as followers of Jesus, who are seated in Christ Jesus in the heavenlies, have authority with Christ over all of the principalities and all the powers here on earth. Because a great victory was purchased by Jesus on the cross. But that was just the beginning of the end. Because through the cross of Christ, the kingdom is here, but the kingdom has not yet come. And when the kingdom comes again, ultimately Jesus will ultimately defeat the power of Satan. He'll get thrown into the lake of fire, and he'll be destroyed. So through Jesus, through Jesus, the power of the enemy is destroyed through the cross of Christ. But here's the second thing, the second powerful truth in the story. Is we see the unquenchable passion of Jesus. To restore those who are far from him. See, the thing about the story is, is that Jesus was on a mission to restore this man. Jesus didn't lose sight of the man for the mission. He went across the lake for a purpose, for a reason. It wasn't a random encounter. And Luke goes out of his way to paint this contrast of this before and after picture of this guy. It's like on Instagram and someone put up those weight loss pictures, you know, and this is who they were before and this is who they are after, okay? All right, it's kind of like that, but so much better. This is who the man was before, but look at who the man was after. And you read it in the different parts of the story. Before, the man was full of demons. Later, he was empty of demons. Before, he was naked. Later, he was clothed. Before, he was homeless. Later, he was returned to his home. Before, he fell down before Jesus, shouting at him. After him, he sat at Jesus' feet like a disciple. He was powerless under the demon's control, and in the end, he was in his own right mind. This powerful before and after picture of what had happened in this man's life because Jesus fully restored him because that's what Jesus does. He rescues us from the enemy's camp when we were slaves to darkness, then he takes us home, he washes us, and he brings us into his family as children. In his kingdom. He fully restores us. Now, here's the most important question. Okay? The most important question in the story is this. Why are there pigs in the story? You thought about that question? What's the deal with the pigs in the story? Well, if you're a first century Jew, right away you would know why there were pigs in the story. Because as it turns out, this is the hinge on which the entire story turns. Here's the thing. Jews don't eat pigs. Jews don't touch pigs. Pigs are unclean animals. And what this means is, is that the people in the story that Jesus went to see are actually Gentiles. They are not from his own people, the Jewish people. The region that Jesus landed in actually had a large Gentile population. And the Gentiles at this point, up to this point in the, in the Gospel of Luke, had not heard about Jesus. 
except for maybe a few people in Galilee. But the Gentiles as a people had not had a chance to hear the good news about Jesus' coming kingdom. And so Jesus actually, in this story, he's going out of his way to bring the gospel to them. Remember, he's intentionally there. He didn't arrive by accident. And then when he's there, he leaves them with something that they will never forget. Okay? This image in their mind of a thousand pigs running down the hill and drowning in the water. And the image in their mind of the before and after story of the man from the tombs and what had radically happened to him. And what's interesting in the story is the Gentiles are out of their minds. They don't know what to do with Jesus, right? They're fearful. They're afraid. What are we going to do? Who is this guy? And so they ask Jesus to go away. They reject Jesus, and he goes away. But here's the amazing part of the story. Even though Jesus is rejected in the story, at the end, the man says, please, take me with you. I want to be one of your disciples. And Jesus says, no. No. Instead, go home. Go home and tell them everything that I've done for you. Tell them the story about Jesus and the coming kingdom and his authority over all the forces of darkness. Why did Jesus do that? Because he has an unquenchable passion to restore those who are far from him. Not only among his people, but to the ends of the earth. And friends, it's perhaps... For these two reasons why we're sending a team into Phuket. Because we believe in the undisputed power of Jesus over the forces of darkness. And because we believe in the unquenchable passion of Jesus to restore those who are far from him. When we are there, we will witness incredible darkness. The calculated, efficient, destructive power of evil as people are sold as sexual commodities. Women and children being sexually exploited just for a few bucks for mostly middle-aged white males from North America. And we will see this. Darkness in its finest hour. But we will also witness hope amidst the ashes through the work of For Freedom International and what God is doing. That in the darkest places, the light of God is shining because... We believe in the undisputed power of Jesus over the forces of darkness. And we believe in the unquenchable passion of Jesus to restore those who are far from him. Now, it's it's a, a lot of content this morning. But there's some power in everything that we've heard this morning. And I think there's two questions before us. And I just want to leave you with these two questions on this day. Number one, will you surrender your life under the power and the authority of Jesus? Is there a part of your life where the enemy's been gaining ground and you've been giving him ground? Is today the day where you can just say, I want to I I give that ground back to the one who ultimately wins the battle at the end of the day? The second question is, is will you follow Jesus in his redemptive mission to save the whole world. Right where you are, with your family, with your friends, with your coworkers, with the guy who drives the bus, your classmates, building friendships with people who are far from God, demonstrating and declaring the gospel, pushing back the kingdom of God by the blood of the lamb and by the word of your testimony. 
Will you follow Jesus in his mission to restore lives? Perhaps it might even mean inviting someone to Alpha. I don't know. But we are the agents of Jesus sent on mission in the world today, the people of God. And he is asking us and he is using us to push back darkness and bring about restoration in the world as we know it. And so, friends, let's do that. Let's be who we are. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.